Um, well, hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Aaron. I'm the lead site pastor here at Hope Community Church at South End. And I'm excited now we get to uh, turn our attention in worship to study God's Word together. And as Kate mentioned um, earlier in the service when we did our call to worship, we're just beginning a, serv- um, a sermon series this summer where we're going to walk through the Ten Commandments. So we just finished a series where we looked at the life of Moses in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus. And we ended up doing just one sermon on Exodus chapter 20, where we get the Ten Commandments. And after doing that, it's, it's trying to hit them all in one shot. It's, it's so rich. We're like, we've got we to gotta camp out in these and spend some more time. There's so much here. And so that's what we're doing this summer. And I don't know what you think of when you think of the Ten Commandments. I know for me, it's, it's often been a lot of, well, here's just, here are just some ten do's and don'ts for me. And of course, they do uh, impact and affect our and relate to our behavior, but they're actually so much more than that. Uh, what God is doing in giving us these Ten Commandments is not just giving us a checklist thing, a checklist of things to do or not do, but He's inviting us into a life of flourishing. The Ten Commandments help us see and invite us in to live the good life. And so that's how we're looking at these commandments. And we started last week with the first one which is to have no other gods before the one true and living God. And today, we're on commandment number two. So the second invitation from God for us to flourish. And so if you want to follow along, I'm going to read it for us and pray before we dive in. We find the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And so let me read this and pray before we dive in and look at it together. Hear now God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for uh, this morning and the chance to uh, come together and to worship you. Um, Thank you for the reminder as uh, you call us to come together every week that you don't call us to do life alone. You don't call us to follow you alone. Um, And that's really encouraging, especially in a life that can be so difficult, can be so lonely, can feel so burdensome, can be so painful. Uh, Thank you that you don't call us to go and be by ourselves and try to figure it all out, but you call us to do it together as a family. And thank you that you've given us as a family your very word that tells us what's true about you, about us, about the way you feel about us and what you're inviting us into. And we thank you for this specific passage and this commandment that we're going to think about today. I pray that you'd give us your spirit, that you'd slow us down, that you'd open us up uh, to be able to hear from you in the exact way we need it. We ask all this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1961, a short little book called A Grief Observed came out in the UK under the pseudonym N.W. Clerk. However, a couple years later, it was republished under the author's 
uh, correct name of C.S. Lewis in 1963, and uh, some of you may have read it before, but as the title implies, it's a book about the spiritual journey of grief, a grief Lewis walked through after the death of his wife, Joy Davidman, and it's four chapters, and it was compiled, these four chapters were compiled from four notebooks he used to write and honestly work through his grief and what it was like for him to work through this with God. And that, that's why he kept his name off of it originally, it was just so raw for him. He didn't want to be directly connected to it. But it's since become a classic on the subject. And one of the ideas Lewis explores in this book is, is the idea of photographs, of images. Early on in the book, he talks about his frustration that he wasn't able to find any photographs of his late wife that were very good, at least good in a sense that they could capture who she was, that they could capture her person like he wanted them to. He wanted a picture that could help him remember her as she truly was, but he couldn't find one that could, could do that, that could capture it all. But near the end of the book, he comes back to this idea and he ends up coming to a very important realization. And here's what he says. He says, it doesn't matter that all the photographs of H, and that's the way he refers to his wife in this book, are bad. It doesn't matter, not much, if my memory of her is imperfect. Images, whether on paper or in the mind, are not important for themselves, merely links. Take a parallel from an infinitely higher sphere. Tomorrow morning, a priest will give me a little round, thin, cold, tasteless wafer. Is it a disadvantage? Is it not in some ways an advantage that it can't pretend the least resemblance to that with which it unites me? He goes on, he says, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want H, not something that is like her. And listen to this. A really good photograph might become, in the end, a snare, a horror, an obstacle. A really good photograph, in the end, might become a snare, a horror, an obstacle. And what C.S. Lewis is getting at here, I think, is a super helpful orientation for us as we come to this second commandment. Where God tells us in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And it's helpful because if the first commandment is about worshiping no other gods besides the one true God, the second commandment is about worshiping no other version of the one true God, specifically through images. To say it another way, if the first commandment tells us not to make something else into God, the second commandment tells us not to make God into something else, into something lesser by making images of him, images that can't contain the depth and the, the fullness of who he is. What God wants to do in the second commandment is he wants to invite you and me to worship him as he really is, in all of his fullness, in all of his wildness, in all of his beauty. He doesn't want us to limit him in any way. He doesn't want us to make images of him that, as Lewis says, in the end, might become a snare, a horror, and an obstacle to us. Because God knows this is how we flourish. As I said, that's how we're looking at these commandments, as pathways to flourish. And God knows this is it when it comes to our worship of him. We've got to get rid of all our false images of him so that we may worship him as he is in all his glory and greatness. And so that's what we're going to talk about today here in our time together. And, and we're going to do it by looking at three points. 
First, we're going to look at the images we make. So we're going to look at how we do this, how this shows up for us. Second, we're going to look at the image we have, so what can help us when we struggle. And then third, and and briefly, we're going to look at the image God is making us. So the images we make, the image we have, and the image God is making us. Okay, so first, the images we make. So how, how do we do this? How does this show up for you and I? What is God trying to correct in us or safeguard us against today in the world we live in? Because though there are some cultures and traditions where making literal images, statues, or monuments to aid their worship of God is a real temptation, that's not where most of us are coming in here to Hope South End. And for this reason on the surface, this can seem like the easiest commandment to sort of just check off. Right, the first one we talked about last week was super challenging, worshiping other things alongside of God, living with this God and mentality. I need God and a certain amount of financial security. I need God and career success, the right family, politics, our bodies, romantic relationships. I shared about, for me, often feeling like I need God and uh, the feeling that I'm competent or that I'm in control of my life. But this one can seem a lot less relevant than that one. It's like, all right, just stay away from statues of God. Like, that's not that hard in my life. I'm good. In context, the people of Israel coming out of an Egyptian culture where they did this, it it would have been very relevant for them. But for us, at first glance, it doesn't seem that important. But it is. Because even when God initially gave this commandment to his people, there was always something deeper he was getting at. More than just the external of the physical image. And that was, and that still is, the issue of imagination. The issue of how we think about God, how we imagine him, how we literally image him in our heads. Because that's where the actual images come from. They start in our imaginations. And to put a little meat on this, it's helpful to look at the example in the Bible of what it looks like to break this commandment. And it it shows up actually just a few chapters later from here in Exodus 32. And we looked at this when we did our Moses series, but this is the story of Aaron and the people of God making the golden calf. Ironically, in between the time where Moses went up to receive these commandments of God and when he came down to deliver them to the people. But essentially what's happening is the people, they're fresh from Egypt. They're still getting used to following God and being in the wilderness. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to be with God for 40 days to receive these commandments. And while he's up there, the people get impatient. They start wondering what, what happened with Moses? What is he doing? Is he okay? Is he still coming down? We haven't heard from God in a while. And so in their anxiety, they create a plan. And Exodus 32, starting in verse one, tells us about it. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed To come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ear, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now it's important to notice the golden calf they make is not another god. 
It's not another God they're trying to worship. It's supposed to be Yahweh. It's supposed to be their God. When it comes out, the people say, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron looks at it and says, tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord, a feast to Yahweh. And so they've made a physical image of God they're using to worship him. But what's the real problem? What's the deeper issue? They've used their imaginations to make God something they can understand. They've used their imaginations to make this unfathomable God who just delivered them out of a national superpower in Egypt through 10 miraculous plagues, who parted a sea in half so they could walk through into something they can manage, into something they can see and touch and feel, into something that makes sense to them, something they can wrap their minds around. And it's important to see what, what it is that shaped their imaginations of God. How, when they thought of him, this, this little calf is what came out. And commentators say in this moment, the people are in between Egypt, where they just came from, and the promised land of Canaan that they're going to. And in both places, bull gods were a big deal. So in Egypt, you had the bull god Apis, and then in the promised land, you had the bull god El. And so their imaginations are going, and they're trying to craft a god they can understand. And what is it that shapes them? It's the world around them. It's the little gods of their culture. In the the image of the golden calf, they craft a God that looks a lot like the world they live in. And here's the point. Yes, you may not struggle with wanting to sneak back into a shed this afternoon behind your house and whittle a statue to use to worship God, even if you like to woodwork. But we all do this. We all use our imaginations to craft our own versions of God. Versions of God that we can understand, that make sense to us, that fit into the norms and expectations of the world around us. And there's so many examples we could talk about. I got really overwhelmed at this point in writing my sermon because I just was thinking of like a million things. It was hard to rein it in. But I really like the four categories Pete Scazzaro gives in, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And he talks about four big ways as Americans, we've Americanized the God of the Bible and what he wants for us as we follow him. And I want to share these with you and invite you to uh, listen to them and and see if you see yourself and if you see us in some ways. So here they are. Here are the four ways he says we do this. First, he says we Americanize God and what it means to follow him by crafting a God who wants us to be popular versus rejecting God. Popularity. So by crafting a God who wants us to be popular versus rejecting popularity. Then the second one, he says, we Americanize God by crafting a God who calls us to be great versus rejecting what he calls greatism. The kind of greatness that's defined by the world that's about status and standing in society. It's about power and how we compare to other people. Thirdly, he says, we do it, we Americanize God by crafting a God who tells us to be successful Versus rejecting what he calls successism. Success that's defined by being bigger, better, more, profits, impact, numbers. And then finally, he says, we Americanize God by crafting a God who tells us to avoid suffering and failure versus embracing suffering and failure. And I'll at least speak for myself in saying, man, all of those convict me so much. I see how I do all of these things. As an American, especially one who's had a lot of privileges and opportunity in my life, 
I want to be popular. I want to be great. I want to be successful. And I absolutely hate suffering and failure. And that specifically has been something I've seen in a deeper way for me recently as Sophia has been struggling with her health stuff since she's been born. And last week, I actually had this, this week, I had this realization. I was exhausted. Everything was feeling super hard. I was having a hard time being present with Sarah when we were talking about it. It felt like we weren't on the same page. And I realized, like, I'm, I'm the problem here. And I realized, gosh, I've just been avoiding this. I've been doing everything I can to avoid looking at the pain and how it's making me feel and how, it's, how sad it's making me because I hate this. Right? I hate pain and sadness. I don't want to deal with it. And I could give you examples of the ways all of these different things I just mentioned show up for me, but ways I take these things from the culture around me and I apply them to the way I think about God, how I imagine him to be and, and what I think he wants for me. We all do it differently. It's, it's nuanced depending on our family of origin, depending on our personality, depending on our story, but we all do it. Even if we're not making it into something physical that we literally bow down to, we break this commandment. And a very practical way to help us see when we're doing this is paying attention to when we say or when we think something like this. Like, my God would or would never do this or that. Or I, I, I would never worship a God who would do this or who would not do this or who would let this happen or who would not stop this thing from happening. Maybe it's a God who never challenges you, who never tells you to do something you don't want to do, who never calls you to deny yourself, who only empowers you and affirms you all the time. Maybe it's a God in the image of a political party, either left or right. Whatever it is, in the second commandment, God wants us to let go of all the ways we imagine him to be that he's not. He wants us to worship him, the real thing. That's what he's talking about at the end of this command when he, he says, I'm a jealous God. He's like, I'm jealous for you. I love you. And I want you to know and love me and not some false version of me that you've made up. I, I want you to know and love me, the real me. And so how can we do that? Moving to our second point, what can help us when we're so prone to create false images of him like we are? We've got to look at and keep coming back to the image of God we have. On our own, this is what we do. We create images of God that are less than the real thing of who he is. But God hasn't left us without something to help us. And what has he given us? Well, first, he's given us his word. And that's something I, I love to pray here on Sunday morning sometimes before we study the scriptures together. I love to, to pray on my own before I study the scriptures. I love to thank God that he hasn't left us alone to try to figure out who he is. He hasn't left you and me to our own thoughts, our own imaginations about him to try and figure out who he is. He's, he's literally told us through two testaments and 66 books that tell one big story about one big God. And he's told us who he is and what he's like and how he wants us to worship him. And that, that's why we study the Bible like we do. That's why we study it like we are right now. It's why it's essential for all of us to have some kind of rhythm in our own lives, studying scripture personally, together with other people in community. In some ways, you could say studying the Bible is actually one big exercise in letting God constantly challenge, correct, and expand our own little versions of him that we create. And so it's essential. We've got to be immersed in it. We've got to be in his word. But we can go further than that, one step further. 
Because this one big story the Bible tells about one big God culminates in one person. That the scriptures actually tell us is the image of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.15. He says about this person, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The author of Hebrews says it this way at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen to this. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact image of his nature. And see, this person Paul and the author of Hebrews are talking about, of course, is Jesus Christ. The son of God, very God from very God, who who put on human flesh and came down to earth so that he could show us what God is like. He is the image of God we have to look at, to tell us what's true about who God is. I love this quote from Brennan Manning, getting at this. He says, Jesus alone reveals who God is. He is the source of our information about transcendence and divinity. We cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, what do you learn about God? Well, you see that he's a God who's fuller, wilder, and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. He's a God who's bigger, who's better, who's more glorious than you could ever come up with on your own. And I experienced this in some ways firsthand this week. So it was Thursday morning. I got up early before my pickup basketball game, but I had woken up earlier um, before my alarm went off and was kind of doing the thing where you're laying in bed and you're trying to fall asleep, but you start thinking about all the things you got to get done during the day. And so you're stressed out, but you just can't go back to sleep, right? You're kind of in this limbo state. And so I'd woken up and I was super tired. I was, I was, I made some coffee. I was going to try to have a few minutes of devotional, but Coming in like this, to be honest, I didn't think it was going to be that great uh, because I was coming in tired. I was also going through the Gospel of Matthew, and I was going to read chapter 8, and all the Gospels are great. All the chapters, all the stories are great, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, Matthew 8, boom. Like, I, you know, this is going to blow me away. So I expected it to just be, you know, like a solid time. But I read it, and it did blow me away. And I think a lot of it was because I'd been thinking in these terms that we're talking about here today all week but it was amazing because in this one chapter, there are six different stories that taken together paint this portrait of the most amazing person, a person you could never put in a box. And I'm not going to read through all of it, but I'll just give you some highlights from these stories. So this is a person who in one moment is moving in to touch and heal a man with leprosy, a total outcast in this culture. So it's this scene of deep compassion and tenderness. But then a person who also in the next story, at the end of the next story, is talking about hell. He's talking about people being thrown into that place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the next story, you see someone who stays up all night healing people with illnesses and disease. But then at the end of that, several people come to him and ask him about following him. And he says, well, if you're going to follow me, you got to give up everything. You got to even prioritize me 
over your family. After that, he falls asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm while his disciples are freaking out. It's like he doesn't even care. They wake him up and he rebukes them for their lack of faith. Then he rebukes the wind and the waves and it stops. And then it ends with him casting out demons from two men, rescuing them, giving them a whole new life, and then angering the entire town by causing all their pigs to drown. That's one chapter from one gospel. See, the living God of the universe that we see in the person of Jesus Christ is a God who can't be defined. He's a God who can't be figured out. He can't be reduced to some image of him that we can create. And he doesn't want us to. God doesn't want us to figure him out. That's not his goal for us. But what God wants us to do is for him to let, we want, he wants us to let him tell us who he is. He wants us to open ourselves up to the fact that we can never define him. We can't, can never figure him out. And, and believe it or not, and this has been a fresh truth for me over the past year or so, that's a, that's a real sign of gospel maturity, of flourishing, of living in light of this commandment, learning to live with less of a mindset of trying to figure God out and more of a mindset of wonder, of awe, of openness, going after him, yes, learning all you can about him, absolutely. But embracing the mystery of a God you can never figure out. And ultimately coming to the point where you see my view of God is always going to be too small. The way I imagine God to be, even well-meaning as I may be, is always going to be a little off. And so what I need God to do is over and over again come into my life and correct it for me, expand it for me, remake it for me. I need him to show me who he really is. And, and that's the journey through the word of God as we look at Jesus Christ, through the circumstances he's working out in our life, in the context of community. This is what it means to follow him. That, that's what C.S. Lewis came to see in his thinking on images, specifically as he thought about images of God. He came to a place where he saw this is what God does with us in and through Jesus. He's constantly shattering the ideas we have about him. And, and he goes on to see that this is actually evidence that he's present and working in our life. This is what he says just a, a few lines after the part we read earlier in A Grief Observed. He says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. In the second commandment, God prohibits us from making images we worship because he wants us to behold and worship the image we have in Jesus. The one we can never get to the bottom of. And the one whose whole life and imaging of God to us culminated when he gave his life for us on the cross so we could be forgiven for all the ways we do this. And so that we can see there more than anywhere else who God is and what he's about. We've got to look at him. We've got to make this our, our life's work, our greatest endeavor, beholding Jesus seeing who he is, let, letting him tell us what's true about God. Lastly, and, and very briefly, what happens when we do that? 
Well, the message of the gospel is pretty staggering because not only does, God, does Jesus live and die and rise again to set us free from all our false worship and the ways we diminish God by making up our own versions of him, but when we trust him, he also does something else. And the scriptures tell us by the power of his spirit, he unites us to himself so that he can actually remake us in his own image. Paul in Romans 8, 29 says, this is, this is God's entire goal for the Christian life. He says this. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and don't worry about that right now. We can talk about that later. Here's the main part. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's doing. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he tells us practically how this happens. He says this. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we worship God in the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens is we start to look more like him. You and me individually, us together as a group, yeah, we've got a long way to go. Sometimes this is a pretty hard promise to believe as we look at our own lives, as we look at us as a group. It's like we're a fixer-upper. You know, we got some good bones, but you got to have vision to see it. But that's the vision God has. And that's what he's doing. That's where he's leading us, to become the city on a hill that Jesus talks about, to become the light of the world he's created and saved us to be. And you know what? That sounds a lot like flourishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these 10 commandments and specifically the second one for the ways it challenges us. Um, and I thank you for the way it, it inspires me to want to know you more, um, to want to look at your son and see someone, see a God who I can never figure out and I don't need to. The way I can't figure out a sunrise or a mountain range or a person. Lord, thank you that that's what you're calling us to, that, that journey. And so I ask that you would do that a little bit more in our hearts today, that you'd help us to see you in a greater way, and that you'd continue to do that um, as we leave here. Wherever we are, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.